Welcome to Biblical Literacy 101. This is a weekly in-person class taught at Columbus Baptist Church. This course is a verse-by-verse deep dive into the scriptures. We encourage you to listen to these recordings and follow along with your Bible open. With that being said, let's get into this week's class. Welcome to Biblical Literacy 101. Tonight we will be studying chapters 24 and 25 of the book of Psalms. Um, But before we get started with any of that, I'd like to open us up in prayer. God, thank you as always for this time that we have to really dive into your word and study. Um, I thank you for everyone who's present here in class and those who are listening online to the podcast that what I have to teach today can be a blessing Um, and get them excited to dive more into your word. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we get started in chapters 24 and 25, I just wanted to remind everyone that you should have a bookmark at the end of this session to put at the end of chapter 25, because we will be taking a pause in the book of Psalms. Um, Starting next Friday for the month of July, we will be going through the book of James. James is only five chapters, and that's going to be one chapter per week, and then we will finish James in the month of July, which is going to be really cool. So if you're listening to the podcast online right now, and you are considering joining us in person, next week would be a great week to come and join us because we're starting a brand new book together. So you won't be uh, having to catch up on 20 chapters of Psalms to join us. So yes. Let's go through these two chapters of the Psalms, 24 and 25. Uh, The last two for a while, (laughs) starting with uh, chapter 24. Uh, It is only 10 verses, so I'm just going to read through the whole thing first so that we have context for it. Starting with verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And then there's a Salah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. And then again we have, lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, and the King of glory, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. And then we have a Selah again. So this whole chapter is uh, really awesome. I forgot to switch the slides as I was reading. That would have been very helpful. Um, but you could listen along. Um, so this whole chapter is super awesome, and one of my current favorite worship songs is actually based off of this, King of Glory by Christian Stanfill, uh, is based off of this entire chapter. Um, and as a whole, and we'll get to our or later, the overview, application, and relationship, but I'd like to talk as a whole first. Um, this chapter is basically sections of descriptions of God. Um, so it's basically building up a case that leaves us ultimately with the conclusion of God being the king of everything. Um, We see this phrase pretty often in here. I mean, I have it up on the screen now, king of glory. We see it several times in the chapter, and I'd just like to address that first so that we have that fresh in our minds as we go through this. 
So this word king, I mean, I'll throw it up on the screen. It's in seven, eight, nine, ten. <laughs> it's all over the place. Uh, the word king. We'll talk about the word king first. We see that in verses seven through ten, and it does in fact only mean king. The original Hebrew, there's no other definition of it. If you look it up, it just has one, king. King is king. Um, but the word, the word glory uh, that is used over and over again has a few other meanings and descriptions. And before we get to that word, I'd like to talk about the psalm title, because, you know, I like the psalm titles. <laughs> Some people don't. I do. Um, they're all pretty close, uh, looking at the different uh, titles for the different translations. In the ESV, we have a very simple title, which I think is the best out of them, just the king of glory. The New King James Version says the king of glory and his kingdom, and then the NASB says the king of glory entering Zion, and if you're reading with the ESV, you'll see the king of glory and a psalm of David right at the top. But this glory, the reason I'm mentioning this, um, we see it a bunch of different times, but it has other meanings than just glory, unlike king, which is just king. We have the Hebrew word that it comes from, which is kavod. I think I'm getting that close. I have no clue, but that's how I'm pronouncing it in the Hebrew. It means uh, glory, honor, glorious, abundance, and riches. Um, and we see it occur in the Bible like 189 times. So if we were to just take the first meaning at face value, glory meaning glory, which is the first definition that we see, um, if we just looked that up and we said, okay, the English word here is glory, and we took the definition and went to the dictionary, this is what we would find. We'd find the definition being magnificence or great beauty, or another definition would be high renown or honor won by notable achievements. But I don't think these really scratch the full value of what king of glory is actually saying. Honestly, no one definition can accurately describe the fullness of God, but these extra descriptions, the ones that are up here, the abundance and riches really stuck out to me. King of glory is not just a way of saying God of honor. It is saying God of it all and then some, right? Uh, the king of abundance, the ruler of riches, the highest in the almighty. Now, this phrase may seem obvious to some of you, king of glory, what it's meaning, and you may be questioning why I'm spending so much time on it, but it is, it is very important to me that when we talk about God so specifically and so directly uh, that we prepare our hearts for it. So it may become easy to gloss over phrases like king of glory and go, yes, God, Got it. I know that name for him, right? Um, but sometimes a simple dissection, dissection of the word, or in this case, the title, King of Glory, can pull out some thoughts that you may have never had. For me, it was this Hebrew word, kavod, this week. Um, yes, the King of Glory, but yes, also abundance. And I think that's what's sticking in my brain. Um, and before we actually get into the verse by verse, I've been avoiding this for weeks. Um, but I feel like it's an important time to explain this because as we move into a different book of James, this is something that I'm going to be using in my teaching a lot. Um, there's a little reference number I put up there next to the word in Hebrew, kavod, and that number is H3519. What the heck does that mean? This is called a Strong's number, and I'm going to be putting these up every time that I explain the Hebrew word because I think it's valuable for you all uh, to know about. So what is a Strong's number? Okay. So there was something, this was something created by James Strong in uh, 1890. Uh, it's usually referred to as Strong's Concordance. This book, which can be found online if you just Google it, um, is not a commentary on the Bible. It's, a, it's an index to the Bible. So this allows you to find the words where they appear in the Bible in the original Hebrew and Greek, 
and it lets you re, uh, directly compare how that same word may be used elsewhere in the Bible. So when I say, you know, kavod, I can go look that up and find it where else in the Bible that shows up. Um, and for instance, I'm actually just going to use this now. Uh, you can see it on here. The Hebrew will always start with an H, and if it's a Greek word, it'll start with the G, and then you have a, a reference number. That's, there's a lot of words in the Bible, so this is super helpful. Um, so let's use our uh, Strong's Concordance right now for verse 1 of chapter 24. All right? So we've got verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Let's look at the word dwell, okay? I don't know how I'm going to pronounce this. I'm thinking it's yeshav, yeshav, something close to that. But yeshav is the word dwell in the Hebrew. And if you were to go and Google and look up Strong's Concordance, go to that chapter of Psalms 24 and look at verse 1, click on the word dwell, you'd get yeshav, which is H3427. And it means to dwell, remain, sit, and abide. This word is used a lot in the Bible, uh, 972 times, which seems like a lot, but there's many, many others that are used a lot more. So yeah, using that Strong's uh, Concordance, I found another place where this Hebrew word yeshav is used, just so we can see the difference in how it might be used in a different context. Where here it's being used as to dwell, right? We have in Zechariah 12.8, Zechariah 12.8 says this, On that day the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. So inhabitants is the same word, yeshav, right? Um, that H3427. Uh, that doesn't mean that we have now some better understanding of what it means to dwell or to be in some place, but it gives me an extra boost of confidence uh, in what I'm reading. So knowing the original Hebrew lines up with how I'm receiving it and reading it, and also that my understanding of the language is growing as well. So if I was to read that without knowing that that means to dwell, my, my English brain would say, yeah, I understand that concept, but knowing that that's the same word allows me to really feel confidence in what I'm reading, that they, the translation is accurate to the original language. So in your own time, <laughs> I encourage you to use the Strong's Concordance. Like I said, just look up Strong's numbers or Strong's Concordance on Google, and you'll see all the numbers, and you can go crazy for a really long time just seeing how things reference to each other. Um, it's very, very fascinating, and honestly, you'll find some discoveries for yourselves of things that totally line up that you wouldn't think lined up from before. Um, so yeah, let's actually talk about this chapter now, <laughs> Psalms 24. The, the King of Glory we have at the beginning, that's our ESV title, and then a Psalm of David. So again, we know that David wrote this. Um, verses 1 and 2 are really setting us up for uh, who God is. It's a declaration. You know, the earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. Um, the world belongs to God. Why? Because if we look at verse 2, God is the creator. He founded it upon the seas, established it upon the rivers. Yeah, verses 1 and 2 are here not only as a reminder, but basically a jumping-off point as we're starting. Uh, remember how I was talking about, I think it was two weeks ago or last week, um, the concept of praying to your own soul, uh, saying things like, God, you are my God in your own personal prayer time, or saying, you are my Lord in your own personal prayer time. It is good to declare who God is to yourself, not just to others. You know, uh, Do not breeze over these verses of 1 and 2. It's like, yeah, okay, establish God. God is the creator. If you open the Bible... If you open the Bible to the very first book, you get slapped in the face with God as the creator. So this is not something to breeze over. You should really be paying attention. Um, yeah, so we have God as the creator of all things. Hence why I think king of glory or king of abundance hits me so hard later on, and we'll see that. Verse 3 is very interesting. Um, 
who shall ascend the hill or mountain in the Hebrew of the Lord? Um, David isn't talking about mountain climbing here, uh, but about the right to come before God. We see this in the second half here, who shall stand in his holy place? This, this question, who shall stand in his holy place, is like the most important question you could possibly ask yourself. Um, it's kind of like the, why do I exist? Why are we here? Who can be with God kind of questions. It's, it's a massive question. Who has the right to stand before God in his holy place, right? Sometimes we focus so heavily on our personal happiness uh, and joy that we neglect this. I'm guilty of it, for sure. Um, how can I be happy? You might ask yourself, instead of, how can I be in right relationship with God? So that's what David's asking here. Again, I've said this before, David is our prayer coach right now. Uh, he's teaching us how to pray correctly. So this is a good thing to keep in mind. Um, and then we move on to verse 4. Here's our answer to those questions. Who, who, can, uh, who can be there with God? Uh, we have clean hands, pure heart, does not lift up or carry what is false or vanity, we have those. And this is, this is talking about actions and intentions, right? So my hands are clean. Those are my actions. My heart is pure. Those are my intentions. Um, this is the one who can ascend the hill and stand in his holy place. This is the answer. Uh, and then we also see does not swear deceitfully. The words we speak are a good indication of the state of our heart. <laughs> uh, you will find that with most people. And I really like how the uh, I don't like to mix translations too much since we stick in the ESV, but I really like the way that the NIV puts this in Matthew. I think it's chapter 12. Yep, chapter 12. Um, this idea of that the words you speak are a good indication of the state of your heart. In Matthew 12, 34, it says, You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. I really like the way that that NIV says that. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Um, now, these answers to who can be with God may seem... <laughs> Uh, overwhelming at first glance, clean hands, pure heart, no, no false vanity, all these things, not swearing deceitfully. Um, and it probably was super overwhelming to those of the uh, Old Testament times, but we have a new covenant through the work of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the one who has the clean hands and the pure heart. Jesus never swore deceitfully or lifted up false idols. He, uh, his righteousness allows us to stand in the holy place, and that's the new covenant. So that's a nice thing that we don't have to worry about, although we should, um, but that's absolutely a wonderful thing to hold on to. And then as we move into verses 5 and 6, uh, we can see the promise of the blessing to those who are earnestly seeking God. This blessing may be a reward that God grants to those who are obedient, but other times it may be just a natural result of living according to God's will. I think we get caught up in that. Um, the physical blessing aspect. I think a lot of people pray for that and hope for that uh, rather than just letting it be a natural result of living according to God's will, which I believe is a, you know, th there is physical blessings from God. We see that in the Bible, um, but praying and hoping for just that is not a right mindset. Yeah, and, and the righteousness, we see, and righteousness from God of his salvation is, um, what verse is that? Righteousness in God of his salvation. Verse 5. Yeah, that's the second half. Um, his being us, his salvation. Um, under the old covenant, that faith was expressed by the trust and the work in sacrifice, right? Um, but this was just a way of looking forward to the ultimate perfect sacrifice fulfilled by the work of Jesus at the cross. And then verse 6 is really just describing the ones who can receive that blessing in righteousness. The seekers. That would be us, right? This is not just for the generation of the Old Testament. This is now as well. Um, we are to seek God's face as if to say, 
you know, even more than just a basic relationship. Seeking his face is, we see that a lot in text, in scripture, in the Bible. And what it actually is referring to is just like as close as you can get, you know? Um, yeah, so we are to seek God's face, God's face and to be very close. And um, there's also a reference here to seek the face of the God of Jacob, right? This reference to Jacob because uh, David was a descendant of uh, Jacob's son, Judah. So we see the God of Jacob as a reference in the Old Testament a lot. But that's just all, that, all the David lineage all the way down. Um, and now for some fun stuff. Uh, we've got verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. Uh, we'll start with 7 and 8, though. Here, if you see that up there, we have lift up your heads, O your gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors. We are receiving the king. This is cool. Uh, this is the first section of the chapter that declares the greatness of God, right? So that first, well, the first section at the very beginning, 1 through 2, is declaring the greatness of God, right? And then we have a second section that we just covered, which speaks on how we can be in a relationship with the great God. <laughs> And now this section that we're coming into is welcoming God unto his people. So that's what I was talking about at the beginning, how it's broken up in those different sections. We get this um, imagery of gates and or ancient doors, two of them, and much like a king entering a city, we're opening the gates for them to come in. Uh, we are accepting this free gift of salvation from a righteous and just king, and we are figuratively opening the gates for him and rejoicing that he is here. Um, and this idea of the doors opening to the king, that the king of glory may come in, as it says there uh, in verse 7. Uh, there are three connections that we can make other than just like the, what I was saying, the personal invitation of salvation. And I would encourage you to write these down. I'm going to go to the next slide. So we have, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. This phrase, that king of glory may come in, could refer to three different things. Um, like I said, when an individual heart opens to Jesus as king, so that's what's saying, letting him into your life, personal salvation. Um, a lot of people speculate that this entire chapter 24 is based on uh, when the Ark of the Covenant came to Jerusalem. And if you want to read up on that, if you haven't in a while, it is in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Um, very, very important part of the Ark of the Covenant's life. Um, and then the third connection that this could possibly be is when... Um, when Jesus entered into heaven and ascended. And if you want to read up on that, that's in uh, Acts 1 and Ephesians chapter 1 as well. Um, and I think they're all valid. I think they're all valid for where this is being written from. Like I said, a lot of theologians uh, speculate that this entire chapter was based off when the Ark of the Covenant came into Jerusalem, ushering that in. And that would make sense with the verses 7, 8, and we'll see 9 and 10. Um, but I think, I think the biggest application for us, and we'll get to that later too, is definitely when we're taking on that personal invitation yeah, to ask Jesus to be a part of us uh, when the king can come in. So uh, I can always go back to that slide if you haven't finished writing it down, but I think those are good to keep in mind when looking at this uh, chapter as a whole. So then we have... Verse 8, right? We just talked about 7. We've got 8. The Lord is strong and mighty. Uh, I believe David is just kind of amazed at this point. Uh, writing all these things that God has done, seeing the impossible task of living up to his glory. We're talking about the clean hands, pure heart, the impossible task. And yet still he is there for us, strong and mighty. Uh, and the Lord is a warrior. We see this in Exodus when Moses and the sons of Israel uh, sang this to God after parting the Red Sea. Um, yeah, I think I have a slide of that because I just really love it. Yeah, 
Again, I don't like mixing translations, but I really love the N NASB version of this. Um, uh, and it says this. This is Exodus 15. Again, this is when Moses and the sons of Israel sang to God after the parting of the Red Sea and Pharaoh, all that. Okay. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Very, 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 very powerful words that they were singing at, after that moment. Like, I got chills the first time I read that. That's uh, absolutely incredible. But this idea of that the Lord is a warrior, we see this over and over again. Um, the Lord's strong and mighty. Mighty in battle is what we're saying here. And then we move into verses 9 and 10. Uh, verse 9, you'll notice, I think I mentioned it when I was reading through it as a whole, is a duplication of verse 7. It's the same exact thing, word for word. Um, and we see this a lot in Hebrew poetry. Um, and this is not just an English translation mistake. All of the Hebrew words are the same exact words. I went through each one. They didn't pick just to make it look exactly the same in English. It is all the same. Um, and it is just for emphasis, just to reiterate. Um, like I said, Hebrew poetry does this a lot. And then we have verse 10. Asks the same question as verse 8. Who is this king of glory? And the answer this time is the Lord of hosts. Uh, the hosts are us. The angels, uh, uh, all the creatures, the entire cosmos is obedient to his voice. Is what this is saying, which is, whew, okay. Uh, and I also love this, this ending. Uh, who is this king of glory? He is the king of glory, <laughs> right? But, but God, he, he is the king of glory, right? Because it, it, it sounds ridiculous in, in context if I was to say, who is this king of glory? Oh, he's the king of glory. It's weird. But the key word is he. He is the king of glory. We're actually answering the question, even though it doesn't sound like we're answering the question. We're saying he, God, is the king of glory, for those who do not know, right? This is, um, this is no small thing, right? That God is stooping down to our level to receive us into his presence, but also to be received by us at the same time. This is not a small task. Um, so that, that's chapter 24. So let's get out our or, um, which if, if this is your first time listening or in the class where I've mentioned the word or, or is uh, a device that we are using to kind of wrap up a chapter. It's uh, O stands for an overview of the entire chapter. A stands for the application, how that applies to us. And then R stands for a relationship. How does this build up our relationship with God? How can we apply that to creating more of a relationship with him? So let's start with our O, overview. So chapter 24 overall, David is declaring the greatness of God. He is explaining how we can be in relationship with this great God and also welcoming God unto his people. And like I said at the beginning, there's those three sections, well, a couple sections in it, but this, that's what it breaks down to, um, what David is trying to get over here in his writing. And then we have our A, our application. Do not take your walk with God lightly, is the application here. He is the creator, the establisher, and he will bless the obedient. Give thanks and welcome him into your life. Don't just be requesting that he come along when it's convenient for you. He is king, right? So check the state of your heart. That's the, uh, the application. And then we have the relationship. I always keep the relationship short 
because I feel like I can expand it in words, but I like to write it down in simple terms because God is so expansive and confusing. <laughs> it can be overwhelming. So for this one, God is king. <laughs> I think that's pretty self-evident by the title and what's trying to be across, uh, get across here. Um, he is in control of your life. Praise him for this in your own personal time, right? Give thanks and welcome him into your life. Don't just be requesting that he come along with you when it's convenient. Um, and are your intentions in line with the king of glory? You know, are your actions and intentions in line? So he is king. God is king. That is the or for chapter 24. And if there are any questions on chapter 24 at all, I'll take them now. Yes, Matt. In verse 4, Yes, absolutely. Um, so he who has clean hands, right? That's our actions. That's, that's what that is focusing on. And the pure heart is the intentions. Uh, and then he who does not lift up his soul to what is false, that false is actually uh, in the Hebrew vanity. So I kind of put them together, that, that don't be vain, don't be focused on. It also could mean false idols or false pretenses. Um, and does not swear deceitfully. So the idea of making sure that what you're saying is lining up to your actions, right? So that last half does not swear deceitfully and pure heart can kind of be put together. And then the clean hands and lifting up your soul to what is false can be the actions. Um, that's how I'd break it up in the two actions and intentions is what I would call it. Yeah, so I... I also looked at that too because I, that's, it seemed like a strange phrase, right? Um, we also, we're going to see something kind of similar to that in 25 where it's like a strange turn of phrase. Um, lift up his soul, I believe in the original Hebrew, the soul is soul, but lift up was to carry. So those who do not carry something false with them, basically. So that same concept of um, don't be holding idols above God, essentially. So that lift up doesn't mean to, it can mean to put above, right? Like an idol, like you would idolize something. But the, the lift up in the original Hebrew was saying to carry, to hold on to something. So that's, that, that I think is the better way to look at this rather than saying holding it above. Um, don't carry in your soul what is false. Do not lie deceitfully or speak deceitfully. Yeah. Any other questions before chapter 25? Wonderful. Let's move on. Chapter 25. Uh, this is a longer chapter. Not the longest one. I think Justin got the longest one. <laughs> For sure. Um, but it is 22 verses, so I'm not going to read through all of it in one go. We'll just go piece by piece. Um, strangely enough, uh, I didn't do uh, any information on the psalm title for this one because I felt that it was clear enough with the ESV. The ESV psalm title says, teach me your paths. And that is like as perfect as you can get for what we're about to read. Um, so I'm going to read verses one and two. Again, this is, David wrote this. We have at the top of David. Um, so verse one says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. I think that's all of verse 2. Yes, it is. So yeah, we know that David wrote this. So David starts here by saying, God, I am completely surrendered to you, right? 
I lift up my soul. Here it is, lift up my soul. Totally different meaning, though, if you look at the Hebrew, not the same lift as the other lift. Very interesting. Um, but he's saying, God, I'm completely surrendered to you. Uh, and then he continues, I trust you, God. But then he focuses on himself here um, in verse 2. Let me not be put to shame. Don't let my enemies be triumphant over me. Um, that exulting is, uh, in the original Hebrew is triumph over me, which is very interesting. Um, yeah, this gives me a, a clue that David is writing uh, this from a time of trouble. Surprise, surprise. Uh, most of David's prayers and songs that I have been going over have been when David is upset. <laughs> uh, so he definitely, it, we don't know the exact context. Uh, we're not exactly sure when this one was written by him, um, or what he was going through, but we know that he's stressed. So we can at least go with that based off of these first two uh, verses. And it's probably something high stakes, knowing David. So we don't know exactly what high stakes it was. But moving on, we have verses uh, 3, 4, and 5. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed, they shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths. There it is. And then uh, verse 5. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. So, here's something interesting. <laughs> uh, the ESV translation for verse 3 kind of makes it feel like a definitive statement here for David, right? None who wait for you shall be put to shame. Sounds pretty definitive, right? But in other translations, and in the original Hebrew, we see that David is actually asking and pleading this. We see in, I picked out the New King James Version, it says, indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. He's more asking, right? And the Hebrew also lines up with that a little bit better. Interesting that it's put in this context like that. Um, but I think it's important to recognize that David is praying sincerely here to God. Um, I don't think it is incorrect for it to say, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame, because David prays pretty emphatically a lot. He prays pretty definitively for the future in the hopes that it does happen. So I don't think it's incorrect for it to feel like a definitive statement from him, but it is interesting to note that it was more of a questioning uh, based on the original Hebrew. And then also, those who wait. Yeah, indeed, none who wait, right? It's not saying that there are lazy Christians just hoping for God to do something, right? This waiting is active. Uh, David is putting himself in the same category. You see that in verse 5. For you, I wait all the day long, right? Uh, I found a really interesting analogy that helped me understand how waiting could be active, because my brain wasn't really grasping that other than the idea of being patient, which is not what this is talking about. Um, the analogy was, uh, waiting on the Lord is not like a waiting room, but rather a waiter attending to every desire and need of the one being served, which is so helpful for my brain in the way that this is being addressed, and I totally understand that now. Um, I hope that is helpful to you as well. So now I, I will say, God doesn't need anything. <laughs> Um, but you get the picture. It is an active service of waiting on the Lord. Um, David continues, Please let your servants not be put to shame. 
please let your servants not be put to shame, but rather the enemies, David's enemies, he's talking specifically. And we have in verse 3 that wantonly, don't use that very often in my regular vernacular, but in the original Hebrew, wantonly actually means in empty condition. So they shall be ashamed, those who are empty, emptily, empty and treacherous. So those who have nothing kind of to live for, essentially. Um, he wants the shame to be on those. And then verses 4 and 5 show how David is kind of longing for correction, if needed. He's basically saying, um, if I need guidance or discipline, please give that to me. Uh, that way he can kind of avoid public humiliation or shame based on his wrongdoings. He's like, don't let it get to that point, please. <laughs> um, and then we see that for you, I wait all the day long again, and that waiting is active. Is, there are many times in the Bible where we'll see waiting is be patient, but it is so clear that it is that. We actually see that in Psalm 27, which we'll get to in, who knows. Um, but Psalm 27 has that more patient, like be still and wait in the Lord kind of stuff. Um, but this is more of a, it, it's not a lazy waiting, or it's not a um, purposeful waiting. It is an act of waiting, like I said before. So verses 6 and 7, let's read those. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. That's hard to say. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. So here is David's plea, right? Uh, one I've definitely made to God myself, honestly. A plea to remember and also a plea to forget, interestingly enough. So David is saying, God, remember your grace and goodness, but please forget the sins of my youth and the sins of my past. Remember me as you see me for the sake of your goodness, uh, which is definitely, definitely, definitely something I have said. Um, yeah, David, David, is being, David is asking to be remembered based on mercy, not on merit. Uh, if any of us had to be based upon merit, we'd all fail. David knows this, and that's why uh, he'll include us in this discussion and plead to God later on in the chapter, as well as himself. You know, it is a lot about David right now, but he also includes the whole lot of us <laughs> as well. Um, and then we have verses 8 through 11. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Interesting. So verse 8 is really neat. I'm going to go back to that. David's observation here of God focuses on his love and mercy. But... For David, it probably would have been just as logical at that time for David to say that God judges and destroys sinners. Um, but David learned through love that God instructs sinners in his way. Um, this is a lot easier for us to grasp because we have a lot of Jesus' love, salvation focus, right? Um, but for David, it wasn't the same at that point. For, so for him to focus so heavily on the redemption of sinners is pretty awesome. Um, but we go on, and we see the humble receives this. So not all sinners realize they are sinners, right? We know this as a fact. But the humble that come before God, asking for that instruction, that's who God is leading and teaching. Well, you may have heard of this man, theologian Charles Spurgeon. 
But he said this truth, and I think it's um, super relevant to what I'm talking about right now. Meek spirits are in high favor with the father of the meek and lowly Jesus, for he sees in them the image of his only begotten son, Charles Spurgeon. So those who are humble, who are meek, um, coming before God, that is who David is specifically talking about in these verses here. And then we see a really awesome promise in verse 10. The, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. If we are to keep his covenant and testimonies, God will continually reveal his mercy and truth in all that we live and experience. Um, but also just through the reading of his word. That's an easy way to do it. Step one, <laughs> to get revealed the knowledge of God. So, so all, the, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. That's what it says, right? No. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Yes, that's what I meant to say. Um, and some may say, God's path for me is really severe or terrible right now, you know? Um, sometimes the path is difficult, but it is God's path for you. Um, this is another Spurgeon quote that I didn't write down, but he said, sometimes the path of the Lord is like heavy wagon wheels. They dig really deep into the ground and the mud, but they get you there. They might hurt along the way, but that is the path for you. Um, which is a really good analogy for when we're in difficult times. Um, but yeah, we might not understand it in the moment, or ever, honestly, and we might understand it when we get to heaven. Um, but God promises that if we are truly humbled and following what he has asked of us, then we are on that reliable path that he has carved for us. And then in verse 11, which I've singled out, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Guilt here is also meaning punishment of iniquity or sin, uh, if you look at the Hebrew word for guilt there. Um, is it strange to say, my sin is great? <laughs> is that strange? Um, I felt that it was strange. So I found this really helpful chart, which I think makes a lot of sense for when our sin is great. I would also encourage you to write these down. Um, so our sin is great when we consider against whom it is, it is committed. Our sin is great when we consider that it is against a just and fair law. Our sin is great when we consider it is committed by those made in the image of God. Oof. And our sin is great when we consider the amount of our sin. So it's not too crazy here for old Davy. <laughs> To, uh, to ask for this, right? For, for namesake, O oh Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And we'll see a little parallel to this later on, too. Um, this is a really important concept um, that I'll touch on a little bit later, but just to reference it. The idea that no matter what you're going through, what troubles, whatever your path looks like, well, however big the wagon wheels are in carving the, uh, the path for you, uh, your sin is always going to be greater than those troubles, right? And that's a really weird thing to focus on, but a good thing for your soul to focus on, that no matter what could possibly be physically happening to you in your life or on your path that God has created for you, that you need to remember that, like, however bad it is right now, I know my sin is worse, right? Um, and that's why I think this works. Our sin is great, uh, 
and not great in a good way, but great in a large, heavy, weighty way. So let's read on. Verse 12 says, Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he, cho- he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. So those who come humbly and fear the Lord rightly can expect the gift of God's guidance, is what this is saying. Uh, we are continuing with this thought on needed instruction. We'll see that in our or. That's going to be a big one. Um, David continues on that we may receive earthly, you know, material blessings, including the descendants of our lineage. Um, But David properly said in his faith, uh, said that he's faithful of this because of uh, his current situation seeming dire. So the idea is that David is saying, yeah, there might be blessings. My my children may be blessed. My lineage, my descendants way on may be blessed. Um, but he's saying that in faith because right now his situation looks a little bleak. We, again, we don't know what that situation is specifically, but we know that that's where he is. So he's basically expressing a trusted blessing for his descendants to come in time. And the friendship, friendship is a word that we don't see too often in the Bible. Um, the friendship or counsel in the original Hebrew uh, of the Lord. Yeah, so it's the counsel in the original Hebrew. Um, friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. So we have, um, we have some repetition here. Uh, the fear of the Lord. We're kind of focusing on that. Yeah, so the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. I like to think of the Lord of the Rings here. Um, <laughs> those who are rightfully fearing the power and the strength of God are allowed to enter into this select fellowship with God, right? Uh, the great secret of the Lord, and, and a greater understanding of his covenant, that being the discernment of his purposes. That's what the greater understanding of his covenant would be, the understanding of his purposes for your life, his purposes in all of our lives. Um, yeah, I like to think of that. That helps me with this little f- phrase here, the, the friendship of the Lord. And then verse 15 says... My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. David is looking in confidence toward God. This is a cool statement because um, it's also a prayer for the future. It's a statement for right now, and then also what's going to happen coming up. Um, David is feeling stuck, whatever the current situation is, that's the feet out in the net. Uh, The feet stuck in the net of his enemies is what this would be focused on. Um, And we'll see that again, I think. Think in uh, verse 17. But that's what he's talking about right now. He's got a confidence. He is saying, my eyes are looking towards you, right now and in the future, um, whatever the situation may be. And then in verse 16, we have, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. I'm going to keep going through 19 and 21 here. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. He's very focused on that shame. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. 
So this whole section, right, um, this entire section is David asking God to turn his attention to David <laughs> a little bit. Uh, turn to me and be gracious to me is what he's saying here. Um, but also David is saying all these specific things about his enemies. But still, in verse 18, focuses on the forgiveness of his own sins, right? He has literal enemies. We know this about David. He has literal enemies that are on him for certain scenarios. Again, we don't know when this was written. Um, but even still, he's focusing on the forgiveness of his own sins as like the main thing. Um, and this was another slap on the wrist for me personally. Uh, I cannot tell you the amount of times I've focused on the troubles of my life rather than the sin inside myself. It's an easy thing to fall into. Um, and it's cool to see how David is saying, uh-uh focus on this, um, even though whatever is going on with him is probably way worse than anything I've ever had, had to deal with. Um, it's good to keep that in mind, too. But David is also proclaiming his faith in God's security and per, uh, provision in his life, essentially. And at the end of 21 here, for I wait for you. There it is again, the act of waiting on the Lord. So whatever the, difficult, the difficulty was in, in David's life, it was not preventing him from trusting and serving God. Um, and like I said, verses 17 and 15 kind of end with a similar plea of bringing David out of a situation. So 15, we have, you know, my eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Then 17, we have the troubles of my heart are enlarged, bring me out of my distress. He's kind of saying the same thing, like, I'm stuck in a thing, please help. Um, which, again, repetition is a very common thing in these po poetry and song-type prayers. But yeah, I think it will, it will help if we get to this last verse to kind of wrap up everything in this. So we close with a very small, small, small verse in verse 22. Um, this is the inclusion of God's people. Redeem Israel, O God, out of out of all his troubles. Uh, David still closes with something that does not focus on himself. He has a very deep concern for the blessing and the future of God's people as a whole. And honestly, this is a really, really, really hard thing to do. Uh, when we are in trouble, to stop and just go, I do not know the exact specifics of the troubles of my brothers and sisters in Christ, but I pray for them now as well, is not something that is really uttered too often in prayer life. Um, yeah, and we may, um, we may fool ourselves sometimes to think that we aren't self-focused when we actually are. Uh, I can't even really give a good specific example right now, but I'm sure you can think of one yourself where you didn't think you were being self-focused, but then it turns out you were. It happens very easily. And David is in a clear season of difficulty here through this chapter we can see. Um, and it would have been really easy for him to end the prayer on verse 21. So I'll wait for you. You know, that's a, that's a simple tie-up, done. Um, but no, with God's guidance and David's humility and also his reverence for God, he is guided in a better way, one that is not just self-focused. He ends, redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles, and Israel being all of us, right? Um, he's concerned of the people of God. So let's look at our or for chapter 25, our overview, application, and relationship. This is going to be a long overview, so. <laughs> but I think it's important to write all these down because it kind of bounces through a couple different really important concepts. So 
Again, David wrote this. So David is troubled by enemies, yet he lifts his soul to God. Um, He pleads for God to remember him and forget his sins. And then David prays to God for his goodness, blessing, and guidance in his life and all those who serve him. That's the, that's the kicker. All those who serve him. That's, that's the end of the whole thing there. So, knowing all that in the chapter, how do we apply that? What's the application? What's our A in the or? The application is be humble and fear God. We saw that fear of God a couple times in this chapter. Um, and what that means, we can discuss even further, but the, the reverence, I like to put it in that uh, thought process. The fear of God can be the reverence, the understanding of the power, the might. We see God, the Lord is a warrior. We see what he can do. And being humble before that uh, power. So yeah, be humble and fear God. Seek instruction from God. Pray for that. But then also pray for those who are also in trouble. <laughs> um, and I wrote it that way because most of the time there's something going on in your life. There's something that is causing you to be distracted from um, the fellowship of those around you, or caring for those around you. There can always be a reason not to. But application, pray for those who are also in trouble, not just yourself. It is good to pray for yourself. I'm not saying that, but focus on that too. And then we have the R. Again, I like to keep it short for the relationship. So this one is also short. Wait on the Lord. Notice how I said wait on the Lord and not wait for the Lord. Um, This is that waiting difference that I like to differentiate. The idea of being a a waiter, a servant, being there for the attentiveness and the needs. So wait on the Lord. We saw that a lot in this chapter. And we'll see it again, I said, in uh, Psalm 27, but almost in a different way. So this this is an affirmation of confidence in God. Waiting and knowing he will do it. Confirming that truth within yourself and with God. Um, yeah, I don't think I need to explain that anymore. <laughs> I think that really much, that pretty much sums up uh, exactly what that's saying there. So that is chapters 24 and 25 of Psalms. And like I said, next week we'll be focusing on James chapter 1. Uh, so we can put a bookmark, if you have an extra one, at the end of this chapter. We'll come back to Psalms at some point. Don't know when. We'll have to discuss that. Um, but were there any questions about chapter 25 or 24 or anything that I explained tonight? Wonderful. Oh, Matt, go on. Yeah. I don't think that's actually that incorrect, the way that you're considering that, because you also have to think of the context of when this was written by David, Old Testament, Old Covenant, right? We're talking at a time where uh, the Ark of the Covenant was a thing, and uh, sacrifice was a normal application. It, again, there was a really good dis- uh, distinction. I was reading this book about Psalms, and they talked about how that sacrifices still wasn't the way that you got that righteousness or salvation. It was still from God. It wasn't like if you didn't do the sacrifices, that's it. Super important distinction. But I think here, 
I don't think that's that far off as far as um, what it could be saying. Um, but for me, it's, it is more of an instruction on the right way to go than saying the opposite is true. Does that make sense? Um, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. If you're not on his path, then you're not within God's love anyway. You're not focusing on that anyway. Um, it's not to say that if anybody is not keeping the covenants or his testimonies that that is gone, right? It's not a if, then, then this, right? Because um, we know that if our merit, like I said before, if our merit was the only thing that it was based off of, we'd all fail. Um, it's all based on the mercy. So the truth is that all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. That is true. That is a truth, no matter what the circumstance. Um, it's just who, who is engaging in that, who is saying that that is the thing that is happening in their life currently, right? Any other questions? All right, I will pray, and uh, that'll be it for tonight. God, thank you for this time that we've had in Psalms as we close a small section of this very large book in your word, God, um, I pray that tonight was fruitful, uh, that it sparks thoughts and conversations later on in the week. And I also pray for our time in James coming up in July, that that also be extremely gratifying and fruitful for us in growing in our faith and knowledge and biblical literacy. God, thank you for everyone that was here tonight in class and for those that are tuning into the podcast, however many years along the way they may be listening, God. Um, just thank you for all of them. And I pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to this week's class. If you are between the ages of 18 to 40 and you're interested in joining us in person, class is held every Friday night beginning at 6.30 p.m. at Columbus Baptist Church. You can find us online at cbcnj.com. That's cbcnj.com. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.